Morning, guys. Good to see you on this day. Guys, I don't know if you've ever had a, taking a, a Minnesota multiphasic inventory. Uh, it's a, a test that's given to people to try to check out for signs of ib- abnormal psych. So if your therapist gave it to you, he's probably suspicious or something. So I was given it one time uh, by the seminary because you know, uh, we have crazy people who go to seminary, so they want to filter those out. <clears throat> so I remember when I took the, multi, multi, uh, the Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory, the MMPI, there are some questions in there that are hard to answer. For example, there's one question that says, do you believe the devil's out to get you? Well, <clears throat> I know they're checking for paranoia, you know, in this exam. Uh, but I couldn't help but to answer that thing uh, theologically and answer it correctly. Yeah, I think the devil's out to get me. And you're an idiot if you don't think the devil's out to get you. And if you think the devil's not noticing you or doesn't have you in his crosshairs, you're making a really big mistake. Uh, I remember <clears throat> uh, reading in the scriptures that uh, the, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom may, he may uh, devour, prowling around like a roaring lion. I remember one time my friend and I, Tom Harry, went to the zoo with our wives and kids. This is in East Tennessee. We went to the Knoxville Zoo. And we went to see a lion. And the lion was standing there, just sitting there in his cage, just, just asleep. You know, it was a lazy spring afternoon, just sitting there. And my friend Tom, and Tom, if you're listening to this for any reason on tape, I just want you to know this one's going to go in my autobiography. I mean, this is this event. But Tom is kind of a, you know, he's just crazy guy, just funny, always doing wild stuff, and he decides that he's going to have a little conversation with this lion. So the lion's over there just, you know, like this, and Tom gets up to the cage and says, hey, Mr. Lion, what you doing today? Hey, you can't get me. I'm over here on the other side of these bars. Hey, Mr. Lion. And he went on like this. I'm going, what is this? You know, and his kid, kids are standing behind you. They're four and five years old. He, 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 Danny, Danny, he's so funny. Daddy's so funny. And all of a sudden, that lion sprung into action. I mean, it was just a nanosecond. And he, he roared across the cage. Roar! And... <laughs> it was something like that. Well... And this lion went all the way across and hit the bars where, right where Tom was standing. And Tom, of course, fell over backwards and fell over the chairs that were there. Waiting, and he was hitting by the floor just out like this. It was one of my favorite pictures of my friend <laughs> teasing a lion as though the lion had no teeth. The lion had, there was nothing he could do. Scared the pajabbers out of my friend. And I thought, you know, so many Christians are that way. They just think, you know, we hear about the devil. You know, it's this little impish figure in red tights <laughs> carrying a pitchfork. You know, it's perfectly harmless. Uh, but if you arouse him, you'll find out. He is a roaring lion, and he's a roaring lion because he has tremendous power. And uh, what we're reminded today is that we do have enemies. In the midst of this great friendship that we talked about last time, this friendship between David and Jonathan, which is paradigmatic in the Scriptures for how any deep godly friendship really ought to be working among all of us. Right in the context of that, we see this incredible opposition that Saul has to deal with. Now, you have to deal with it too. 
And that's the reason we're studying this. this. This is very, very instructive for us. We need to know so that we're on guard and that we're not trying to arouse the devil. Believe me, he's already aroused. Uh, we're, we're not oblivious to his schemes. We're very aware. We also uh, are learning to trust the Lord for our deliverance. So we learn how to pray and ask the Lord for help. Because when we see how powerful our enemies are, we know that we can't do this on our own. And we also need to be sure uh, that we understand the biblical approach to this so that we can rightly interpret our own times. What's happening to me? What's happening in my life? What's happening around me? What's happening to the church? We need to be aware of spiritual forces and opposition to God's people. All that's very, very important as we look at this text. And you'll notice on your schedule uh, between now and Christmas, we are looking at David as he's being pursued by his enemies. So this whole four-week section is very important for us to get a grasp on how we deal with these things in our lives, how we deal with it psychologically, how we deal with it socially, but especially how do we deal with it spiritually. And uh, there'll be different aspects of David's uh, experience that are applicable to, to us today in our time that we'll be examining. Now let's look at chapter 18. This is on page 521 in your study Bible. And let's recount what we read last time about David and Jonathan and then just go right into the text. Uh, and we'll look at chapter 18 first of all. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And we saw that last week. Now let's look at this new text. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, 
Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well uh, to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Okay, notice first of all, in verse, when we're looking at verses 6 through 30 in the chapter, first of all, notice that God favors His anointed. God favors His anointed. David is the Lord's anointed, so is Saul. But in this sense, we're looking at how God favors His spiritually anointed. And you know, of course, that the name Christ means anointed one. So Christ is the ultimate anointed one. He is full of the Spirit beyond measure. Uh, he has God's full favor. God the Father has His favor set upon His own Son. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him, says the Father from heaven. The word Christian means little anointed ones. So there's a sense in which if you're in Christ, in the anointed one, you also are anointed. And you see from Acts chapter 2, that you're anointed not with oil, but you're anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit comes with power on the church. And all the believers now are anointed with God's Spirit and have God's favor because God favors His anointed one. Now notice, first of all, a, uh, in verses 6 and 7, God's favor brings success. David was having success, and you see this word four times. In, verse, uh, in, in chapter 18, you see it in verse 5, verse 14, verse 15, and then the very last 
verse, verse 30, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. He had success. And God gives success to his anointed. Now, the temptation is to turn that immediately into what you want uh, for success in this world. A lot of money, prestige, a new car, vacation home. We consider that success. We'll see that success is defined differently. We'll see that biblical success is different than worldly success. It's true that when you have biblical success, you have God's favor on you, that oftentimes that does have material implications. But that's not guaranteed. You can see there is a trend there. There's an upward lift in your life. For example, if you become a Christian, your fellow workers should be able to trust your word. You become a person of integrity. That makes you more valuable in the organization. Whatever organization you're serving in, you're more valuable because you've given your life to Christ. When you give your life to Christ, He not only saves you from your sins, He increasingly delivers you from the power of those sins so that you become more like Him. And if you're like Christ, you're going to be a very, very good worker, a good CEO, a good lawyer, a good doctor, whatever it is that you are, a good teacher. You're going to devote yourself to excellence in the workplace. When that happens in an economy like ours, often that means material success as well. But we're not talking specifically about material success in the New Covenant era. We're talking about God's success. We'll get into more of that later. But here, remember, David is in a theocracy. So the material blessings often reflect spiritual blessings in a one-to-one relationship. Just as God says, even late in the Israelite economy, when they're coming back from exile through the prophet Malachi, bring the tithes into the storehouse, and I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing you cannot contain it. He's talking about crops, rain for your, your crops. He's talking about yield on your harvest. He's talking about very physical things. Why? Because Israel is a theocracy where God's, uh, God is king and the blessings of the king are shown in the holy land among the holy people in their day-to-day life. Now we're in a dispersion, so the blessing comes spiritually until one day we're regathered in the theocracy back in the New Jerusalem and we'll have the material success again on a one-to-one re- re- relationship. But here he's granting success spiritually to all of us who are His anointed. Whether we live or we die, we shall have success. You can see the Apostle Paul. He says, as far as I'm concerned, there's much more uh, joy waiting for me if I leave this life. But he says, for your sake, I'll stay. But whether I live or whether I die, I want to exalt the Lord in my body. And that is success, to live a life that's exalting the Lord. And He will give that to His anointed. Uh, You'll notice here in this text that the women are using their tambourines, which are little half drums with some little cymbals on it. And in the scriptures, you'll find these tambourines are used regularly for celebration. So they were celebrating. What were they celebrating? They were celebrating their warriors who were defeating the Philistines, their great enemies. And so, of course, they're out there singing. Now, most Hebrew scholars who look at this little ditty in verse 7, they say, The women who were singing that were not necessarily saying David's better than Saul. Uh, This is typical Hebrew idiom where you say they've slain their thousands, yay, and ten thousands, and they want to mention both Saul and David. So probably the intention behind it with the women is simply to say both Saul and David are our warrior uh, champions, 
and they're slaying thousands, yea, even ten thousands. And they're not particularly putting David over Saul. Now, I don't know if that's correct, but that's what some Hebrew scholars will say about this text. But there's no question about the way that Saul interprets it. For one thing, he doesn't want David to be equal with him. He doesn't want anybody mentioned in the same phrase in which he's mentioned as a champion of the people. And furthermore, if there is any hint that David's success is being celebrated, it brings raw jealousy out of Saul. And you see that in verses 8 and 9. Success often brings jealousy. Now what's tragic here, and it's tragic in our own day, that when some younger men than you, or men that don't have the same education you do, or maybe don't have the same social connections that you have, they're not from East Memphis, they just kind of come in, and they start becoming very, very successful. That instead of embracing them, you often want to shun them. And I'm going to talk about deep down in your heart. You find this jealousy rising up when someone else is being successful. We all know the sensation. And what's tragic about it is, Saul had this young champion in his own royal court that was there to advance the kingdom that Saul is ruling over. Saul is shooting himself in the foot, and so are you. If you are not able to take in young people, people with different backgrounds from yourself, and see them advance and encourage them in their advancement. I remember the the late Herbert Ray, uh, and some of you knew him very well. If you knew him well, you knew that what he took delight in was divesting himself of his own connections and power and giving it to younger men. Everything that he did, at least in the latter half of his life, was to hand something off to somebody else and help them be successful. Now there's a picture of what a, a godly man is really trying to do. Not just to be successful yourself, but to have it ripple down. And Saul was the opposite of this. Saul couldn't stand to have anybody acknowledged above himself. Saul distrusted a trustworthy man. How tragic is that? And this is not just a a military issue, of course. It's a political one uh, because Saul uh, sees David as a rival to the throne in verse 8. You can see that. What more can he have but the kingdom? He's a rival to me. And here's a classic case of a man who's putting himself above the kingdom. Look, if you put the kingdom above yourself, and if you put God above yourself, and if you put the welfare of the people in your company, or in, in your city, or in your club, or your church above yourself, then you will be one who will be welcoming people in with this kind of skill, who are better than you are, and you'll be advancing them and lifting them up over your head. Why? Because it's good for the glory of God. It's good for your church. It's good for the community. Saul was just the opposite of it. Here is a clear sign of wickedness. Now just compare here to how Eli, the priest Eli, with all of his problems, and certainly we saw he he was not the greatest father in the world. He was not the greatest disciplinarian in the world. But you know when little Samuel comes in, and before Samuel's even a fully grown boy, he has a dream or he has a word from God that says that Eli's family is going to be judged. And Eli convinces Samuel to tell him about that dream. And what does Eli do? He submits himself to the judgments of God and to the discipline of God. And he continues to nurture and cultivate Samuel. 
who becomes a key figure, the key figure probably, in First and Second Samuel. Look at the contrast. The man, the man wasn't perfect. Eli wasn't perfect. But he is a stark contrast to the man Saul who's trying to eliminate anybody who rivals his power and prestige. I think all of us need to take a good look at this to be sure that, that we uh, are not keeping people down or out because of our own pride. Now, notice thirdly in verses 10 through 11 that jealousy often brings malice. So it's not just what you think in your heart, but oftentimes it leads to really bad external behavior. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's not uh, just what you do, it's what you think. And what you think often leads to something that you're going to do, which is the case here with Saul. Look at verse 10a. You notice that it involves the spiritual underworld. This is an enormously important uh, principle here. When we continually violate the will of God, we leave ourselves open for the influence of the demonic. Do you understand this? That you continue in a certain direction, you're just asking the devil to come in and play and have a, have a field day in your, in your mind and heart and in your life. Uh, if you want to look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see a principle there along these lines. It's on page 2269 in your Bibles. And here's what Paul says about anger. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and look at this, and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul is saying, if you continue to cultivate your anger. You're just leaving an open door to the evil one to come in and ransack your house. Anger is often the open door for all kinds of wickedness. And I've seen it over and over again. Men who have a hard time not just controlling their outward expressions of anger, but have a hard time controlling their hearts. Uh, when they continue to ruminate over all these things they're angry about, what happens they're, of course, wishing somebody else dead. And that's the reason that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a form of murder. When you're contemplating someone else's absence or their death, and you cultivate that anger and that resentment toward them, and when you do that, you're violating the Sixth Commandment, you're, you're inviting someone to come in from the underworld. And that's exactly what happens. And here, of course, uh, we're told that a harmful spirit from God Look at verse 10, rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. He was a nutcase. He had, a, he had an evil spirit and was sent from God. You say, I didn't know God would do that. Well, actually he does. God's not responsible for the evil. He's not the one who made evil. But once evil comes into the cosmos, God orders it. Nothing happens outside of his control. And... When we harden our hearts through repetitive sin, like Saul or like Pharaoh in Exodus, God then will sometimes judicially harden the heart further. And of course we know 
That's to display His justice against wickedness. It's also, ultimately, to deliver His people. In the case of Pharaoh, he hardened his heart to the point where finally the only answer for the Israelites was to be delivered through the Red Sea in the wilderness into the Promised Land. And if Pharaoh had not hardened his heart through all those ten plagues, the Israelites would not have been delivered. So God is exercising His judgment. He's displaying the glory of His judgment against Pharaoh. He's also redeeming His people through judicial hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which was already being hardened by Pharaoh in his stubbornness. Likewise with Saul, how do we get David, who is the great forerunner of the Lord Jesus Himself? And how does God display His justice even among His people? Well, Saul disobeys the Lord over and over again as we saw earlier in chapters 13 and 15. So God allows this evil spirit to come in and drive him crazy. Why? God will display His judgment. And it's being displayed even now. This is an act of God's judgment on Saul. Also, it is the very mechanism by which the new David will be raised up, the new king will be given, and ultimately we have final redemption given to God's people through the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son. So God doesn't create evil, but He orders it. And it's always ordered for His glory and the good of His people. We do not always understand it because we're living in time. And the only way it can be understood fully is when we see it from the perspective of eternity. We can't understand everything in, in the scope of our three score and ten. We have to have an eternal perspective, and that's the reason we read the Bible. When we get an eternal perspective from the Bible, we are better able to understand some of the acts of God. But it involves the spiritual underworld. Secondly, notice it violates the sixth commandment. Here's just a high handed sin against God as Saul hurls the spear. To hurl the spear at any man who had not committed a crime is a horrible violation of all kinds of commandments, especially the sixth commandment. But to hurl it against the one who has been defending God's people and who is anointed by the Lord and who's living a righteous life, how wicked is that? I'm just telling you, you've got somebody out after you and he's not fair. He doesn't respect righteousness. And the better you are, the more he hates you. That's your enemy, the devil himself. And you have to understand that you can't be surprised when you do something good and all hell breaks loose. What do you expect? The more you do, the better you are, the more influential you are for the kingdom, you become a bigger target. So Saul just outrageously violates the sixth commandment. Thirdly, notice, this jealousy cannot overrule God's favor. But David evaded him twice. Now, of course, we know David was a discerning man. He was also a young man. He was also very athletic. So there are lots of explanations for this. But the ultimate explanation, as we're going to see, is that God grants evasion and escape to His people. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, notice then that not only does God, God's favor often bring success, and success often brings jealousy, but uh, uh, jealousy often brings malice, but malice often brings greater success. Here's the irony of it. You think that because you're walking more closely with the Lord and, the Satan, and Satan is resisting you with greater power that you're going to decline. No, no, no. God brings even greater success through greater resistance from the evil one. And some of you have lived long enough to see this. 
that as you face trials, and I'm talking about trials that sometimes are just irrational, where they just have no explanation except for the demonic, and as you face those trials and persevered through them, God has strengthened you and made you stronger. There's no question about it when you're walking with the Lord. It's exactly what happens with David. Notice in verses 12 through 15, first of all, God's favor provokes fear in the wicked. And you see this uh, over and over again in this chapter, that Saul is afraid of David. Why is he acting this way? He's afraid of him. And you don't realize this, that your walk with Christ elicits fear in other people's lives who are not walking with Christ. It elicits fear in the wicked. I look at some of the ways the wicked are responding in public and in private, and there's no explanation for their irrationality except that they're just terrified. They're very angry, and their malice comes out in irrational ways. They don't think clearly anymore. Now, why is he afraid? This phrase, God being with David, occurs three times in the chapter, and each time you see that phrase in verses 12, 14, and 28, you also see the fear of Saul. So do you think the author here is making a point? Notice here the key to David's life and service. This is what it means to be God's anointed, that God is with you. Now there are some people who don't know the Lord who will say, especially in times of distress, well, I know the Lord's with me. Well, there is a sense, of course, in which the Lord is omnipresent. So in one sense, with the English preposition with, you could say, God is with everybody. He's with the dogs and the cattle and He's with the trees and the grass. He's with everything that He's made. But that's not the way in which it's being used here. There's a special meaning here. If God is with you, that means that He becomes your defender. You are His anointed. You have His favor. You are special to Him. And the way in which that happens, of course, is that you give your life to God. You're in God. God's in you. You give your life to Christ. And Christ becomes your elder brother. He becomes your savior, your redeemer, your friend, your king. And you are favored by Him. That's what it means to have God with you. So in the Great Commission, when we're given this breathtaking commandment to make disciples all over the world, of every tribe and language and people, the great necessary promise that's at the end of that commission is, and I will be with you always even to the end of the age. Here's what God means. I mean I'm going to be with you like I was with David. That's what He means. That as you carry out this great commission, His power, His protection, His defense will be yours. He'll be your fortress and your strength when you go about in the Christian mission. And it's a particular with. It's not just with humanity in general. It's with His people who are engaged in His mission. That's exactly what David was doing. Now, when you have Him with you, anybody who has given themselves to wickedness will fear you. And you'll notice in Saul's case through this chapter, we're told that he feared David, and then we're told he had great awe of David, and then we're told at the end he has more fear of David. You can see it growing. The fear is growing as David gets stronger. And that's exactly the way it happens. So notice that the malice of the evil one just brings us greater success because God's favor does provoke fear in the wicked. But notice, secondly, verse 16, God's favor leads to favor with the common man. Boy, if there's anything you notice in this chapter, six times David is loved. 
Look at all those verses where he's loved. Now, why would this be? Does it mean he's loved by every single person? Well, no, not exactly. Certainly not loved by Saul. But it means that the people who are needy, the people who need protection, the people who need support, the people who long for a leader, the people who want a servant in their community, they love God's anointed. You look in Jesus' life. Uh, we are told that by the time he was 12 years old, he was growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So when we have God's favor on us, then we find that among the hoi polloi, among the general people, and especially the poor and the lonely and the left behind, that we become beloved by them. Why? Because there's someone greater than ourselves. The Lord is greater than ourselves, and we're here to serve other people. And they don't have their pride all mixed up in an office they're trying to defend or an income they're trying to preserve. And they're glad to have anybody uh, who has the background and the abilities of people like you in this room who will take, take a heart after those who are poor and lost. And David was beloved. You see it over and over again. The women loved him. The poor people loved him. All Judea loved him. Why? He was out there fighting the Philistines. He was taking care of them. He was putting his life on the line. This is what the Lord's anointed always does. He always puts his life and his possessions on the line for other people. And anybody in their right mind can see it. So generally speaking, not without exception, but generally speaking, you'll find that God's favor leads to favor with the common man. Let me ask you, does the common man love you? Is the common man glad that you're here? Is the common worker in your workplace glad that you're there? Does he or she see you as someone who promotes the welfare, the common wealth, the common welfare of your organization or your neighborhood or your community? This is what the Lord's, Lord's anointed will do. Notice thirdly in verses 17 through 27, this long section, God's favor cannot be outmaneuvered. And believe me, your enemy will try to outmaneuver the favor of God. Notice, first of all, in verses 17 through 19, that Saul tries to manipulate David through false promises. But broken promises are met with humility by David. This is what the Lord's favor does. It enables you to face broken promises with humility. Now, you can go all the way back to the previous chapter when David defeated Goliath. And he was told before he defeated Goliath that the one who did that was promised the daughter of the king. Where is she? Well, she's nowhere to be found. So Saul lied. He was just trying to get somebody to go forward in battle, and he would give his daughter to him, he said. But he didn't. Why didn't he? I don't know. But perhaps it was because David was from a commoner family. He was a poor man. We know David was out there keeping sheep. His family probably wasn't very wealthy, didn't seem to be prestigious at all. And you find it in David's language here. He's acknowledging it. I'm nobody. I'm a commoner. I'm poor. I have no money. So there, Saul had no political interest, he thought, in co-opting David into his royal family. And the reason you give your princesses away is to co-opt the princes who were in other places. And David was not a prince. So he's lied to once. Here he's being lied to again. And Saul says, well, look, I tried to throw my spirit at David twice and he got away, so let's forget that. Uh, 
let's just let the Philistines take care of it. So Saul, lying Saul, now makes another false promise uh, to, to give Mirab. And David goes out and defeats Philistines. And Saul withholds Mirab. He does it now twice. And look at David's language here. It's absolutely extraordinary. He says, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? And then you see that she, Saul takes David up on that statement. David offers a humble statement of his own background. Look where I come from. I'm a nobody. And Saul says, okay, uh, I, I'll give my daughter to Adriel, the Maholathite. Unbelievable. Broken promises. But look at David's humility. David does not have a sense of entitlement. And furthermore, David was glad to lay down his life again for the sake of the kingdom of Israel. He was glad to go defeat the Philistines anyway. So David didn't see it as punishment. Paul, Saul was trying to manipulate him, but David saw it as something good. David does seem naive here, doesn't he? But I think sometimes that righteous humility... Uh, looks like naivete. Notice in verses 20 through 27 that intended snares are met with victory for, for the Lord's anointed. Here's an amazing story. Uh, Saul hears that his daughter, Michael, is enamored with David. And instead of being glad for her that her heart, like her brother's heart, is being knit to a righteous man, and any dad here who has a daughter who's marriageable age and her heart is being knit to a righteous man knows the joy of what I'm talking about. And sometimes I see men who want their, still want their daughters to marry a prince, um, a worldly prince, instead of a spiritual prince. And anybody who had a daughter who, was, who had her heart knit to David should be delighted that she has such a good judge of character that she wants to be knit to a man of such high caliber, even though he's a poor man and seemingly has nothing to offer to the, to the royal palace. But Saul doesn't see it that way at all. He's a wicked man. He's a worldly man. He's a secular man. And Saul simply sees it as an opportunity to manip manipulate David again. And so he says, okay, David, uh, my daughter's in love with you. You're in love with her. You can have her. I just need a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now, in case you're wondering... That doesn't mean that you go over to the Philistines and say, okay, can we all line up here? I need 100 foreskins. No, no, it doesn't work that way. But nobody's going to be volunteering for that line, so you have to go kill them. And the way that you prove that you killed a Philistine instead of a Jew is you bring in foreskins because Jews didn't have foreskins. They were gone. So you can prove you killed a Philistine if you bring in a foreskin. So David says, once again, this is the reason I'm here is to defend us against these awful enemies, these Philistines who are still raiding us and harming and scaring our people to death. So sure, I'll go over and get 100 of them. He went over and got 200 of them. Just notice the favor that God has upon him. He turns, he turns our snares into victory. And it reminds me of Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, who was thrown into a well and then sold off as a slave to the Ishmaelites, who then sold him off to Pharaoh as a slave, and you know how Joseph through the years was elevated to be prime minister of Egypt. And when his brothers finally came to Egypt because they needed food 
and David ultimately, I mean, Joseph ultimately revealed himself to them. They were terrified. Here's the one they had betrayed who's now the most powerful man in the world. And he surely is going to take their lives. And he, he assured them that he would not. But then Daddy Jacob died. And then the brothers were absolutely sure now that Dad is dead, Brother Joseph is going to wipe us all out. And Joseph had to assure them again. He said, do you think I'm God? Am I the ultimate judge? He said, no. This is verse 20 in chapter 50. He says, you intended it for evil. God meant it for good. God used your selling me into slavery to redeem Israel from their, their poverty and from their starving starvation. So we have food because God in His providence allowed this to happen. That's the way David's mind is operating. Saul is not the king of kings. God is the king of all kings. And David realizes that God is in charge of his personal history and that he's working out everything for his purpose. So if in his providence, David is sent out to kill Philistines in order to marry the wife that should have been given to him, he takes it as an opportunity in God's providence to exercise courage on behalf of God's people. That's exactly what he does. Now let's look at chapter, uh, well, lastly, the verse, uh, last two verses there, uh, E. Greater success brings greater hostility. You see it here. Saul's even more determined. So there's a, there's a cycle here of the resistance that you get. You're getting stronger. You're getting more gifted. You're becoming more useful. And at the same time, the devil is persevering as well. And he gets stronger, tries new tactics, and looks for new ways to take you down. So there's this spiraling upwards. Even as uh, your strength is increasing, so are his tactics. That's what you see there. Now let's look at verse 19 in the moments we have left. And in, verse in chapter 19, rather, uh, there are four episodes here where David is delivered. And what God is clearly showing us is that when his favor rests upon you, when you have his anointing, he's going to deliver you from every circumstance. Let's look at it. In chapter 19, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Okay, everything's ratcheted up now. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Now, we studied this text last week to look at the nature of real friendship, that our friendships, our deepest friendships, are built upon the common bond we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that trumps even your natural family relationships. That's how deep a deep godly friendship really is. But what I want you to notice here from the text is that uh, intrigue is foiled by integrity. 
Jonathan's integrity in his friendship to God and to David foils the intrigue of Saul. And you'll notice in Matthew 10, 35 and elsewhere, Jesus says, if you follow me, you must leave your father and your mother, your brothers and your sisters. You must love me more than your family. Gentlemen, that is your calling. You have to have Christ number one. The greater son of David has to be your first commitment in order for you to be any follower whatsoever. And there are times then when you will have to confront everybody around you. I don't think that you can live very long and not have some confrontation on behalf of the Lord Jesus with every close person in your life. At some time or another, it's going to come up. And you have to decide right now what the answer to that conundrum is. The answer is total loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. With Jonathan, it was here and it was clear. And David is experiencing deliverance from Saul because of the integrity of Jonathan. The kingdom rules. Now notice in verses 8 through 10, there was a war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with the great blows so that they fled before him. Then, here's the harmful spirit again from the Lord, came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. It only took another round of triumphs over the Philistines for Saul to renege on his agreement. You notice back in uh, verse 7 that he says, As the Lord lives, verse 6, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And here he is again. So your wicked enemies always lie to you. You should be dismayed. You should be depressed. You should be grieved over these lies. But you should not be shocked that you get lied to. And, you, of course, you feel like a dupe when you get lied to. But David had this happen to him over and over again. And David just accepts it. An evil spirit came over Saul. What do you expect? He's not going to keep his integrity. And David flees. Now, notice thirdly that murderous, plot, murderous plots are foiled by marital prevarication. Here's a very interesting case where... Saul sent messengers, verse 11, to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him. Here we go again in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael led David down through the window, and he fled away, and here's the word again, escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at his head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at his head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus? What a question. Why do you use deceit? Hmm, I wonder where she got it. Uh, why do you deceive me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. She lied flat out to him. He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? She learned well from her daddy, didn't she? But on the other hand, this is kind of like the Nazis who knock on your door and say, are you harboring any Jews? And of course, you've got, you've got five of them back there upstairs in your bedroom, and you just look at them with a poker face and say, no, we don't have any Jews here. We've never had any Jews here. I don't know why you'd even be asking. 
Of course you lie to the Nazis because they're going to take the truth and use it for evil, and you know that ahead of time. So of course you lie to them. Just like Rahab lied and just like Michael lied, you're lying to a liar who wants to use the truth to destroy and kill people. So you lie to them. So the lie is justified, as a matter of fact, but she learned her skill, uh, came by it honestly from her daddy, that's for sure. But notice then that the murderous plot is foiled by, premar by marital prevarication. And this reminds us of Psalm 59. This psalm was written about that event. And you can see from Psalm 59 that David is appealing to the Lord. He pleads with him. Look, when you know who your enemy is and you know how powerful he is, in David's case, Saul's the king and Saul hates him. You're in trouble. Well, guess what? The prince of this world, the one who rules over the power of the air, as it says in the Scriptures, the one who for a moment is given control over certain things by God's providence, he's after you. So you better be praying. And most of the Davidic Psalms, really, if you'll just look at the Davidic Psalms in the Psalter, more than half of them are Psalms like this. They're Psalms that to plead to be delivered from his enemies. We need to learn how to pray like this because our enemies are keeping us from progressing in our, in our ability and willingness to spread the kingdom of God. It's happening. We need to be praying. And then notice in the last half of that psalm, David celebrates the Lord. He says, I'll sing to the Lord. Why? Because of his deliverance. He's my fortress. He's my salvation. And he says in that last line, the God who shows me chesed, steadfast love. The God who shows me grace that will never be taken away. This is the God I worship. So in the midst of David's fleeing from all this evil, what is he learning? The God of the heavens will deliver him and he can trust him. You may not be able to trust the wicked ones around you, but you can trust the Lord. And you never lose your hope. You never lose your optimism because you're trusting in the Lord who is showing his favor to you and will keep you in his favor. Then lastly, verses 18 through 24, devilish invasion is foiled by divine intervention. And here you have a case. I won't read it for the sake of time. But David goes to talk to Samuel. Imagine what that conversation must have been like. Samuel says, David, son, how are you doing? And David says, Reverend Samuel, I, 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 can't even, I can hardly even explain to you what it's been like. And Samuel encourages him, no doubt in the Lord, gives him wisdom from an old man, this prophet Samuel. Saul finds out that David's there in Ramah where Samuel is. He sends messengers three times, and they are what we might call today slain in the spirit. They can't do anything to Samuel because the spirit hits them and they're out. And they go back to Saul and says, sends another group. Does it three times. Finally says, Saul says, I'm going by myself. And he goes and gets stripped naked, flat on his face, completely humbled before the Lord. And they all say, is Saul numbered among the prophets? Because he's even prophesying. He got slain in the spirit is what it was. So here's what we're learning. That when you get to your most dastardly wicked moment, God, by divine intervention, enters space and time, and He takes up your cause, gentlemen, and He defends you. And this is the reason that you find psalms uh, in, in the Psalter, like Psalm 2, where, where the, the psalmist says at the beginning, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord is holding up His Son and lifting Him up on Zion's hill. David is the king. David's going to be the king. Saul is going to be removed. And no matter what comes against him, the Lord is going to preserve His anointed. Do you think He thinks any less of you? If you are in Christ, you are to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. You too will be on Zion's holy hill with the Son of God. You're one of his brothers. Do you think for a moment that God is going to allow anything to destroy you or do you keep you from getting home safely? Yes, of course, he delivers us over and over again. Sometimes we get decapitated. Sometimes we get thrown into prison. Sometimes it looks like we lose. But in the long run, what we find out, we do not lose. The Lord raises us up out of the grave, gives us a glorious resurrected body, and we live forever with the Lord as the brothers of David, the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what we learn through our little deliverances and escapes and fleas and rescues in this life is that the Lord loves His anointed ones and His favor is upon them. And as you go your way today, just go realizing the favor of the Lord is resting upon you so you can have confidence no matter what you face that you are ultimately delivered from every fear, every foible, every stratagem of the evil one. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great salvation that is proffered us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we may be your faithful, confident, trusting, anointed men today, no matter what comes our way. And help us to realize that you are the God of all of history, and all of eternity, and that from eternity's perspective, we will see it ourselves one day, that everything was working out for your glory and our good. We make our prayer in Jesus' name, the name of David's greater son. Amen.